Hello and welcome to the Language Revolution podcast. My name is Kate Hamilton. I'm a languages teacher and founder of Babel Babies. The aim of this podcast is to get people talking about talking. So without further ado, let's get started. Recently, we've been talking about how we can reimagine language learning for the 21st century, because as Union Liu and I explored in the previous two episodes, communication is changing rapidly as new technology emerges. Are we preparing our youngsters for the reality of the world we now live in? Today, I am delighted to welcome Sascha Stollens to the podcast. Sascha is a lecturer in German at the University of Lancaster and part of the academic team for the Linguistics in MFL project. He engages with schools through the University Outreach Programme, and today we are talking about how to join up the language learning process for pupils from early years through to university level. Hello, Sasha. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Kate. Thanks for having me and thanks for inviting me on. It's a really great honor to, to, to talk to you. And I think there's a lot to talk about. Yes, there certainly is. So the number of students choosing to study languages to degree level has been in a worrying decline for a while now. What is the situation in universities, Sasha? Yeah, Kate, you're quite right. It really is quite worrying. Um, so just to throw in a few numbers, um, in 2013, The Guardian actually reported that 40% of university languages departments face closure. And indeed, I myself, I, I've lost track of how many departments I know about that have been struggling, that have had to close, and the number of petitions I signed trying to save some of them. Um, and that's quite a recent report actually by the Higher Education Policy Institute that says that between 2010-11 and 2016-17, student numbers for French have dropped by 45%. German declined by 43%, Italian by 63%. So it really is quite worrying. Of course, that's in part to do with um, the fact that fewer students are taking an A-level in languages. So what have universities done? Um, they've tried to be creative around this and lots of universities have introduced what we call ab initio pathways. So those are pathways, degrees, which are an opportunity um, for students to study a languages degree, even though they don't have an A-level in the language. And I think it's quite a great opportunity for a student who, for some reason, opted out of studying languages at some point, or who couldn't take a language at A-level, but now they would like to pick it up again. And it also makes university a little less dependent on, on secondary provision at A-levels. But yeah, this decline really has quite severe consequences for the whole sector, I think. And it really creates this vicious circle, doesn't it? I mean, to give you an example of what I mean, I've just said that universities are quite dependent on secondary provision and um, A-level numbers. But it's not just that way around, is it? It's also the other way around. It really is a circle. So we need language teachers who educate and inspire children and teenagers from primary level up to sixth form, really. And then at university, we train language graduates which include our future teachers, who then educate the next generation of university students. So it's all connected and we're all in this together. It really is a circle, the circle of life, if you like. So that's why I'm such a strong advocate for joint up thinking, for collaboration across sectors. I think in education, you really need to look at the bigger picture from early childhood up to university and beyond. And of course, let's not forget about um, the value of lifelong learning. Why do you think teenagers are opting out of studying languages? Wow, yeah, the big, big question uh, and a really complex one, but a really important one. 
So I think uh, there are lots of factors. First of all, if English is your first language, I believe that there just isn't this organic need and motivation to study another language. And I know I'm aware that this is a slightly controversial statement, but I think it's important to acknowledge it. So, um, as you know, I'm from Germany, and um, like in many other countries, we are taught English from a very early age because it is really necessary. English is the lingua franca. If I travel to a country where I don't speak the language, using English is my way of communicating with those people. But of course, it's not as simple as this. And of course, it's not true that everyone speaks English and um, that English-speaking people don't need other languages. I think we just need to reframe the, the way we view it and the way we think about this. Because there are lots of good and important reasons to study languages, even if English is your first language. But yeah, I do kind of understand when people say, so, well, I'm an English native speaker, why do I need to study languages? And that, so I do understand why people feel that way, and it's very hard to compare English-speaking countries to others. But that's why I think we need to think about all this very carefully, and also think about the way we teach, assess, and promote languages and promote their value. So I would suggest let's look at languages differently. I mean, aren't languages just wonderful? Languages are such a creative area of study. So I did listen to your, to your podcast, the, the episode that you've done with um, Charlotte Ryland about creative translation. And how fascinating and inspiring was that? I'm personally a huge, huge fan of translation. And I like how complex it can be and how creative it can be. Like a puzzle sometimes or something you can be creative with, play around with, test different ideas take into account cultural aspects and cultural contexts. But then, when you actually look at the way translation is assessed in exams, for example, A-level exams, you see that it's used as a very narrow exercise with clear right and wrong answers, really as a means to test grammatical knowledge and vocabulary, completely rid of all that fascinating creativity that we've mentioned before. And I think this is one of the key issues. So rather than approaching languages as a fascinating, complex subject that's an integral part of culture and closely linked to other subjects like history, literature, art, politics, we just sometimes reduce languages to this very narrow transactional view that they are useful tools. And I mean, they are useful tools. And it's great to be able to order a coffee in French or write an email to a Spanish penpal, but that's not all this is about. So to sum up, I think the second reason why teenagers often opt out is because our curriculum just isn't that engaging and exciting. In fact, I've done some research um, on this a couple of years ago, and my colleague and I, we spoke to just over 100 undergraduate languages students and asked them, so why did you decide to continue with your languages? Why did you decide to study them at university? And the vast majority, I think over 75%, said it's because they really enjoy them, they have a genuine interest in the language and the countries where it is spoken. And they loved how engaging with languages also meant engaging with culture, history, politics, and society. So this really is at odds with um, how we promote languages as these useful tools and how we emphasize that they boost employability and how successful languages graduates can be. And I'm not saying this isn't true or important, but I think maybe for a teenager, 
it could be a bit boring, really. And there's so much more to it. And then lastly, uh, of course, there's this perception that languages are hard and that it will be harder to get good grades in languages compared to some other subjects, which is also something that really needs to be looked at. So yeah, uh, long story short, a really complex question and there are lots of potential reasons and lots of things we could work on. Now, what is being done to reverse the decline in language study? Yeah, unfortunately, I think not enough um, seems to be done at a high up political level. And um, I think what ideally, in an ideal world, we would need is a, is a proper, thorough uh, curriculum reform and a review of our assessments and our assessment strategies. Um, I know that there is something going on um, for GCSEs at the moment, so some, some sort of review, and it will be interesting to see what the outcome um, of that will be. And of course, I should also, also mention that there is this um, all-party parliamentary group on modern languages. So there is something going on in politics, but probably not enough. Um, and um, quite recently, this year, the, um, the British Academy has um, published a document called Towards a Languages Strategy where they argue really convincingly that we should have a national political strategy for languages. And they also outline what this could look like. And it's been co-authored by some very, very prominent um, organizations like um, the Arts and Humanities Research Council, the Association of um, School and College Leaders, the British Council, Universities UK, and lots of other organizations um, have had some input. I really do hope that it makes an impact, but, what I think is really, really positive and inspiring is everything that goes on on the ground, if you like. So all the amazing initiatives and projects happening across the UK, from mentoring projects where um, undergraduate students mentor students in um, secondary schools, national competitions, outreach collaborations between university departments and schools, and so much more. And I think it's really, really exciting and inspiring to see so much energy and enthusiasm from the whole sector. There are lots of teachers who are doing an absolutely phenomenal job trying to inspire students and share their love for languages. And of course, there are great initiatives like this podcast. Uh, I think it's really important that we are vocal about our passion for languages, but also that we highlight and keep highlighting the issues and challenges we are facing. I couldn't agree more. It's really important to keep talking about it. Sasha, what will happen if we do nothing about this decline? In fact, are we already too late to save languages at UK universities? Oh, I really, really hope uh, it's not too late yet. Um, but I do think that the time for change to happen is now. We don't want to get to a point where any damage, if you want to call it that, seems irreversible. And um, I mean, I don't want to get too political um, here on this podcast, but with everything that's going on in the UK and in the world, I think it's really important to make sure that we, the UK, remain a society that's open-minded, open to other cultures, and a society that has a global mindset. And I believe that languages play a crucial, really, really crucial part in this. We also shouldn't forget that many people in the UK already do speak other languages. So the UK is not a monolingual country at all. And English isn't the only language that is spoken here. This is a really important aspect. And we need to, I think as a society, we need to learn to value our multiculturalism and our multilingualism more. And then I hope that we'll be able to, to reverse the trend. I agree, definitely. What is a child's experience of learning languages through their school career? 
how does it all join together from when they go into primary school or in early years and then through GCSE to A-level? Yeah, so um, languages are, of course, um, currently compulsory at, at key stage two. And um, I've seen some fantastic work being done in that area and some great um, initiatives, for example, the Primary Languages Network and lots of great things are being done at primary level. But um, specifically at primary level, but also at other levels, I think often a big problem is that there is very little contact time allocated to languages. And um, also teachers at primary level are usually not subject specialists. Now we could, we could talk about whether they really need to be, but um, I've spoken to lots of primary um, teachers who say they don't really feel very confident teaching some basic French, for example. And if a teacher lacks confidence in their ability to, to teach something, I think that's an issue and something we need, to, we need to do something about. Yeah, but then beyond primary level, that's it really. So sadly, sadly languages, at least in England, but also in, in some of the other um, parts of the UK, are not compulsory at secondary level and beyond. So many students really miss out if they then choose to do um, a GCSE in a language, they will be confronted with an approach that is very narrow, focusing on rather transactional language skills. And yes, I would probably say learning how to tick boxes, driven by the nature of the curriculum and the exams. I mean, I'm not going to go into this in too much detail because you discussed it at length with um, Transform MFL in a previous um, podcast episode. But I think it's quite frustrating and demotivating really and um, it could feel very different from how languages were introduced during primary education. So I think it's really these transitions, primary, GCSE, A-level university, that we need to work on. And you were asking how it all joins together. I think it doesn't really. Mm, that's really interesting, isn't it? It does feel like three separate um, kind of domains almost. And sometimes for the child walking through their own education, they might get a very piecemeal sense of how languages actually work. And even I've had students tell me that they don't think English is a language. And that's really ironic because we spend a lot of time in primary school now talking about literacy and grammar and English language, but actually they don't equate English language with the modern foreign languages that they might encounter. And there is no kind of holistic overview for the students. It can be they can feel quite lost in this idea that there's multilingualism in the community, there's a bit of French, and then there's English literacy. And actually, we could maybe show them the bird's eye view that all of this is one subject, it is languages. And, you know, I think that might be quite a beneficial viewpoint for the students. So what can students expect if they have done a, an A-level, say in German, and they go on to choose a degree in German or another language? How is that different to A-level study? Yeah, I mean, I think you're completely right, by the way, in saying that um, we, we lack this holistic view and we also lack um, sort of uh, linking languages to other subjects. And English is the obvious candidate, but there are so many more. Um, so I absolutely agree with you there, Kate. So um, I think one of the most striking differences um, between a degree at university level and A-levels, for example, is the amount of cultural studies that usually forms part of a university degree in languages. So while there is still language teaching, so language acquisition, the language acquisition focus, sort of like grammar, vocabulary, communication skills, 
and so on, similar to what students know from school really. This is usually based on topics that really help students understand and discuss issues that are relevant to the countries and um, cultures they are studying. And there are also a lot of, um, usually there are entire modules or entire courses that focus on cultural issues, literature, art, politics, history. Uh, there's not enough linguistics in my view in uh, UK languages departments, but uh, there are lots of other things. So um, often to, um, students can choose their modules depending on their interests. So I would say at university you have a much broader menu to use a metaphor that you used in one of your previous episodes. And um, things like learning about cultures and societies, discussing political issues, other issues, developing skills like critical thinking, I would probably say they are considered to be at least as valuable as fluency and accuracy in the language. So um, I think to understand how a university degree is different from A-level, for example, or from secondary schools, I think it's important to understand a little bit about um, how a university language department works. So usually lecturers who teach um, in a language department at university, they have their own specific interests. And this is often what we teach, and what we teach is often inspired and informed by our interests. So um, many university departments will have experts in literature, cultural studies, history, language acquisition, and all these different areas of expertise contribute to the program that students will be studying. That's why, although there's common ground, it's very difficult to compare degrees because they will always have different, different focus. So, um, yeah, what our first year students often find surprising um, is that some of our assessments, even in German or French or Spanish or Italian, uh, can be in English. Particularly when, particularly when they relate to literature, film studies, cultural studies. And at least in their first year of study, they usually are in English. So we don't really shy away from discussing certain issues in English during our classes either. This is because I think we, yeah, we, we acknowledge and we value this type of knowledge just as much as language skills. And we wouldn't really expect students to write complex academic essays in, in French, German, Spanish straight away. So yeah. Personally, in my language classes, um, I also try to encourage students to really be creative, to experiment with the language, even to make mistakes. After all, it's by making mistakes that we learn, and mistakes are often a sign that you're making progress. So um, yeah, I think we are lucky that our assessments and mark sheets are not produced by external exam boards. Of course, they are regulated and scrutinized by external examiners. And they must adhere to um, the national standards and benchmarks, but we have much more freedom to allow students to be creative and experiment. So um, the, the context is quite different. And um, this is what I've just said, is very different from the constraints that um, secondary education finds itself in. So if students are not adequately prepared then or given insights into the way we teach and learn languages at university, what do we need to do about it? How can we show them what language learning is all about? Well, I don't know if I would say that they are not adequately prepared, but there are certainly some elements that are approached quite differently. So, I mean, I can give you one interesting example that always surprises me and always baffles me after, after many years teaching in higher education. So often when students come to us in their first year and we give them an, assign an assignment, they ask, yeah, but for this assignment, how many tenses do I need to use? Uh, 
How many subjunctives and passives do I need to include? How many and what kind of prepositions or idioms should be included? And I usually say, well, as many or as few as you need for the purpose of your text and for the purpose of your argument. So if someone whose first language is, let's say, German, wouldn't use three different tenses in 300 words for a specific communicative purpose, why would we expect you to do that? And this gives students lots of agency and freedom, but it can also be a little frustrating, which I appreciate, because this is not really what they are used to from GCSE and A-level. So it really strikes me that A-level and GCSE exams are a lot about ticking boxes, pleasing examiners, and this is a mindset that students have internalized. Understandably, I don't blame them at all. But it's really at odds with what university education is all about, and indeed with what any part of education should be about, in my view. Now, I should really, really stress that I'm not saying at all that A-level teachers are doing something wrong. I've, work, I've worked with absolutely brilliant teachers, and they are doing absolutely the right thing in trying to prepare their students as well as they can for the exams. So they're doing absolutely the right thing, I think. Um, but I suppose at university we have the luxury, if you like, the luxury that we don't have to work within the same constraints and that we set our own assessments. So I think what we really need to do is work together as much as we can. I think cross-sector collaboration is the key. I know that university departments are usually really keen to work with schools to deliver masterclasses, uh, taster seminars, um, visit schools to give talks. So I think it's important to connect, to link up the sectors and give students opportunities to experience what university education will be like. So just to give you an example, um, one thing we did this summer at Lancaster University is we delivered online taster lectures for all the languages that we teach, Chinese, French, German, Italian and Spanish, and also one focusing on translation and interpreting. And they are now all available on our YouTube channel. So if you, if you want to check it out, it's Languages and Cultures at Lancaster University. And what we did is we deliberately designed those taster seminars in such a way that they showcase how we at university and how we as a specific languages department approach languages, just to, to help really to help students um, get an insight into how it works at university. Well, that sounds absolutely brilliant. I shall go and look those up. Given the constraints of the current GCSE and A-levels curricula then, which are not looking likely to change anytime soon, what would you suggest that we could do as teachers and the general public to open up language learning for our children? Yeah, you, you, I think um, you're, you're mentioning a really, really important point there. I also don't think that it's likely that GCSE and A-level level curricula are going to change anytime soon in a meaningful way. And that's something actually, if I may say so, is where I was a little bit disappointed in the um, British Academy language strategy because it didn't really touch very deeply or in, in much depth on this issue of curricula and how they should be changed. Well, I think what we can do and what we should do is try to find ways to rethink and reinvent languages. Do all we can to pass on our passion and fascination to pupils and to parents as well. I think we are our carers or families. I think we shouldn't underestimate how important they are and, and what kind of role they play. So I think what we can always do is, is try to empower students to use the internet, any resources available to discover their individual interests. Some students might really 
like uh, French pop music or analyzing German from a more scientific linguistics point of view, finding, finding out more about etymology. So I think if we help students to, to identify their interests and to find out more, I think that would be a big step. So let's also be role models and share with students what fascinates us, what we, we personally like about languages and what has drawn us to languages. And let's stop going on about how useful languages are and how employable they make you. I mean, it's important, but it really is a bit boring and it feels like a very defensive argument, doesn't it? So I would say if you're a student or a teacher, do feel free to reach out to your local university department or your former university if you're a, if you're a teacher or any really and ask if they can help. Many unis, like I said earlier, like to deliver masterclasses, summer schools, share resources. And yeah, we really need to get the word out, be vocal. Let's share with the world all the amazing stuff we are doing and all the amazing stuff uh, languages are about. And hopefully this will then inspire the general public too. I couldn't agree more. So how can we empower teachers to feel able to explore languages, say with primary school pupils or at secondary schools? Yeah, well, um, I think what we need to focus on, in my view, and this is just from my personal experience, obviously I'm not a secondary or primary teacher, but I've worked with many of them. So um, I don't want to be judgmental or anything about this. But I think what we should really focus on is trying to build confidence in our teachers. So um, offer teachers high quality training and CPD opportunities, and then most importantly, trust them. So as I said, I'm from, I'm from Germany and I was educated in Germany. And I'm not going to say at all that the German education system is perfect or that it can be compared easily with um, the education systems in, in the UK nations. But I think what really strikes me as quite important is that in Germany, generally, teachers are trusted a lot more. They are seen as experts of their subjects. They have a lot more freedom. They're not bound by exam boards. And I think that's quite good. So, I mean, let's just look at the recent developments around um, A-level and GCSE results and how they really show how little the government, or I should probably say Ofqual and the, particularly the English Department of Education, trust teachers and their judgments. And I think it's not just a real shame, but a real missed opportunity. So I think, yeah, let's try to enable teachers at all levels to have sufficient subject knowledge and freedom to be confident role models and educators. And I think we have amazing teachers in the UK. And we have lots of amazing linguists. We just really need to invest in them. So one rather specific thing I would really like to mention um, is if I could change something about teacher education, specifically um, MFL teacher education, but also teacher education in general, I think I would make linguistics a compulsory part of the training. So in my view, every educator should have some general basic training in linguistics and in language, language as, a, as an object, a scientific object of study. So every teacher, every educator should know a little bit about how language works, um, as I think language is central and important to everything that we do. And I think this is one of the things that keep um, coming up in discussions um, related to a project that I'm involved in, with is the, which is the um, Linguistics in MFL project. I am really interested in the Linguistics in MFL project. Can you tell us a bit more about it? What is your team aiming to achieve and how has it been going? Yeah, sure. So um, the Linguistics in MFL project is a cross-institutional project. So our team consists of academics from 
five different universities, if I have counted that correctly. And um, we work very closely um, with secondary language teachers from across the UK. And we, um, we strongly believe that linguistics should be a part of the MFL curriculum at all stages, really. And um, that it has the potential to get students excited, enthuse students, increase motivation, and also to help students with their language skills. Um, but it also has the potential to offer a very interesting and exciting perspective on language. Now, I should point out that by linguistics, because it's sort of like a vague term sometimes, we don't mean a narrow definition um, of linguistics as grammar, grammar teaching or grammar for language acquisition. What we mean is um, the study of language as a cultural, political, sociological phenomenon. So questions like, how and why does language change and develop? Um, how did people sound 200 years ago compared to now? What different dialects and accents are there? Um, topics like multilingualism, online communication, and how it differs from written or oral communication. Um, the French spoken in Canada compared to the French in, say, Belgium or Madagascar. Uh, attitudes about languages. So I could go on for ages. So these are just some some random examples of what I think, what we think are exciting topics you could explore as part of language classes. So we've done, um, uh, we've done a pilot, we've done a few pilot studies and where we gave mini linguistics courses, or we provided schools with mini linguistics courses for their students. And um, what we found is that um, those students who took part, they found them overall really fascinating. They said that they would like to learn more about this and that they would like there to be more linguistics in their language classes. So now we are currently um, working with teachers to develop materials for French, German and Spanish A-level. So hopefully there will be some, some more languages um, added to that list soon. Um, but so yeah, that's, that's our current, um, so the current stage that we are in. Um, developing materials that are in line with current A-level topics that introduce students to some of the things that I've mentioned before. So um, if, I may, if I may say this, if any teachers out there would like to get involved in some form, maybe try our materials um, or just um, talk about this further, please do get in touch. Our website is just uh, linguisticsinmfl.com and we're also on Twitter, at InMFL and we have a discussion group on LinkedIn actually. Fantastic. I will make sure the links are in the blog that goes with the podcast as well, so people can easily get in touch if they are interested. Why is introducing linguistics at A-level, and I would argue a lot earlier, an interesting idea? Well, I do agree with you that we should probably introduce it a lot earlier. So we are currently focusing on A-level, but we are thinking about um, branching out and, and looking at GCSE and probably even primary, primary education as well. So... Um, our aim is to show that linguistics in language teaching could really motivate students and offer, you know, an exciting bridge between language acquisition, language learning, and learning about cultures and societies. And we also believe that many of the current A-level topics, they could already really benefit from a linguistics perspective. So to give you some examples, um, in German, for example, um, one of the A-level topics is usually Berlin, so the, the capital of Germany. So wouldn't it be exciting to discuss the Berlin dialect, which is quite a specific dialect, um, and multiculturalism and multilingualism in Berlin? Or um, when talking about the digital world, 
uh, why not talk about online communication? Look at some authentic German tweets, WhatsApp messages, and analyze the language and how it differs from what we sometimes call standard language. So at the team, we really believe that linguistics is a great way to learn about societies and cultures. And I mean, we are kind of, we are all fascinated by accents and dialects and language change and etymology. So how certain words um, have developed and, and what they mean now and what they used to mean and where they come from, how languages are related. So just to give you another example from my, from my personal experience. So I'm currently studying Dutch uh, very enthusiastically. Um, and Dutch is a language that is closely related to both German and English. And it's always, it always fascinates me to find out about the history of a word or an expression and then to compare, compare it to the other languages I speak. So, um, for example, I've recently learned the Dutch word, and I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation, town, which means garden. Well, so it's spelled T-U-I-N. I was absolutely baffled when I found out that this word is related to the English word town, as in city, town, and the German word zaun, which means fence. So all these three words in three different Germanic languages, they have all developed from the same proto-Germanic word, but they have developed into different directions. But you can still kind of see the relation, can't you? They all describe like an enclosed space, a certain territory, or in the case of the German word zaun, the means by which the space is enclosed, a fence. Now we could delve further into the history and find out when and how and why these words took on different meanings, what this might be able to tell us about the history of Dutch, English and German speaking countries and so on. We could also talk about the sounds and how they have developed in the different languages. Why has the t town tone become t sound in German? Now, probably a bit of a niche example, but I found it so fascinating myself. And uh, I think it really tells us a lot about the potential of linguistics. Now, another thing I think linguistics can help us with is with our language skills themselves. So, um, yeah, like I just said, now this will probably help me remember the Dutch word town for the rest of my life. So, yeah, to sum up, I completely agree with you, Kate. We should really start even earlier than A-level, definitely at GCSE level, probably even at primary level. And this is something we are currently looking into. Um, uh, with a project. And we're also very keen to work with um, teacher training providers to see in what way linguistics could maybe be incorporated in teacher training. So again, people out there, please do get in touch if you're interested in exploring this further. I think it's absolutely fascinating. And I have got, well, personally, I've got three children, but I've taught lots of children as well who are under 10 and um, throughout secondary school. And they love learning about the connections between things. And I think linguistics is really a bridge, like you say, between personal experience and um, realms that you haven't explored yet you can really dive into sort of the etymology like you did just then or talk about how the sound differences have come about and say when I teach Babel Babies we do row the boat in Norwegian and I always mention about how it's linked to English and people don't know that English and Norwegian are so closely related and often the English and Dutch and German have got a common history so I think it's really important it shows where humans have been and how we've got to where we are now so I, I really can't think of an argument for not doing it and I think we should definitely try and get it to become a bit more mainstream that you would talk about linguistics like David Crystal was saying the word linguistics sounds a bit off-putting and dreadful but really it's just completely fascinating it's one of those subjects that you can 
take in any direction you please as well, isn't it? Sasha, just to finish off, what is your vision for the future of language learning in the UK? Where do we go from here? Very good question, Kate. Um, Well, if I may daydream for a couple of minutes or so, I would say my vision, my dream is that ideally languages should be compulsory because this would really communicate how important they are. And they are important. They are essential. And I think we need a major curriculum reform. We need an exciting, varied, creative curriculum that is linked to history, politics, linguistics, of course, other subjects. And if I keep daydreaming, hopefully this will develop quite naturally because as a country, we will have realized at some point that multilingual is normal. See what I did there, Kate? (laughs) And uh, (laughs) multilingualism is a good thing and that languages are interesting and exciting and that they are a key element of being a global and outward looking society. Okay, now, if we come back to reality, I really do hope that this British Academy strategy document that I mentioned earlier will have some impact on political leaders and the public discourse. And I hope that teachers from all sectors will be heavily involved in any future discussions because they are the experts after all. So all the fantastic stuff that has been going on in the community, all our initiatives, our projects, I hope that will keep inspiring people What we probably really need in the end is a grassroots movement. And I can sense something happening. So let's keep what we're doing and hopefully this will bring about change. Absolutely. Hopefully by joining up some of the thinking that's happening across the different parts of our discipline. So we've got the academics like yourself, the teachers, the students, and by all working together, we can hopefully begin to create a new era of language learning. So how do you say vive la révolution auf Deutsch? (laughs) Es lebe die Revolution. Indeed, Ah. in der Tat. (laughs) Danke schön, Sascha. Thanks so much for joining me. Sehr gerne. Thank you, Kate.